Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. And I am Azaria Keys. I am also occupying Lenape land. In this Q&A episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, we're going to be building off of last week's episode, DEIAB, an $8 billion industry. If you haven't already, make sure to listen to that episode. In fact, in a podcast centering on diversity, it's interesting that it'd be our second to last episode of the season. Indeed. And it's interesting that although all aspects of DEIAB impact the workplace, there's a great deal of discrepancy between the effectiveness of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging initiatives. And also, as an industry, there's a great deal of variety in things like best practices, metrics, and goals, which isn't necessarily bad, but it can make it challenging to know who to hire and which direction to take in terms of things like employee policies, ERGs, trainings, leadership initiatives, and more. Yeah, there's a really good article, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's entitled, Why So Many DEI Programs Are Failing and How to Improve Them, and it came out by Forbes.com. And I think it's really important for people to acknowledge that DEI initiatives are not all created equal. Yeah, as someone who has been working formally in the DEI space for a few years now, I feel like I'm always transforming my philosophy around DEI and why the work matters to me. Obviously, with everything going on in our nation, I have views right now that might be considered more radical or problematic to some people. But I do think that where DEI is right now, we really need to advance it much more because we're facing times that we need to act more and not talk so much about what Mm. the plans are, but actually do. So I sometimes take issue with the general DEI approach that can be found across different organizations. And right now, I think that we need to have way more action behind these mission statements and plans. And let's actually do the work because it's under attack right now nationwide. But there at least one thing that I haven't heard about in my time in the DEI space is this term of DEIAB. So let's talk about all the letters. So DEI, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with that. It stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Equity, not to be confused with equality, right? Not giving everyone the same things, but giving everyone a fair and reasonable chance at success, at opportunities, at positive outcomes. And then the A stands for accessibility, which I think we focused on hopefully all throughout this season, but definitely in the episode, we wanted to touch on accessibility for individuals of all demographics and primarily the members of the disability community. And then B, there's been like a huge push across the nation to get DEI initiatives to include that B because belonging is really important, right? It's not enough to just include people in the conversation. They need to feel like they belong, like they matter. They have a voice and a vote in what's happening. And I think the importance of belonging cannot be understated if we're looking to create safe and psychologically supportive environments for people at work and anywhere. I think that belonging piece really matters. And Darylise, can you talk a bit about how reporting about this episode has impacted how you see our work and our DEIAB philosophy? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Zach, as I'm sure our listeners probably know now because they hear all of our ads, right? You and I have been conducting DEIAB trainings for years now. We do workshops, we do facilitations, we go into organizations and conduct audits and coach leaders in order to have more inclusive and, and accessible policies, et cetera. And so I think being in this space and doing this work, I'm constantly wanting to evolve and grow and learn from different people about their approaches. And I would say that one of the things that really stood out to me about this episode, I learned a lot from all of the various guests, but Lily Zhang's commentary on changing individuals versus changing systems. And Lily spoke about the difference between changing individual droplets of water versus changing the container. And it's so interesting because I think that was a perspective that I'd never heard put into words in that same way before. But that's something that just intuitively I've always sought to do. Like, can we change individual hearts and minds? And also, can we support better structures to promote more inclusive policies, policies that celebrate diversity. So I would say that for me, this episode really reinforced a lot of what we already do, but it also opened my eyes to just how diverse (laughs) diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging initiatives can be, just how various those offerings can be, and how Every organization needs something different, which I think is why, Zach, you and I, when we go into organizations, we always really have a pretty in-depth and thorough conversations before going into those organizations because we really want to make sure that we're giving that organization what it needs and every organization is different. So for me, it was very validating. It was inspiring. I learned a lot. And I would say it just reinforced to Azaria's point how urgent and important this work is. And yeah, we shouldn't just be talking about it. Again, I'm going to pull out something that Lily said, but they were talking about how can we just stop defining things already and get into the business of doing. Azaria, what about you? Did any of the interviews from this episode impact you or shift how you see things? I also agree with Lily. Can we please stop defining things already? And while I like the B added, I know there was just recently a New York Times article that will be posted in the show notes, but I am of the notion that I am a little tired of adding letters when the letters that have been in DEI are still something that we are not doing the best at across the board. So yeah, defining, adding more letters, I understand the reasoning behind it. But I also understand that I think that there is real meaty substance that we need to get to that we still have not been able to achieve and streamline across enough industries and organizations. But that's a little rant. But aside from that, I would say that this just reinforced a concept that I've really been thinking about lately, where several people in this episode mentioned humanity and putting the people first. And while I agree with that, I recently attended a DEI-focused conference for business schools doing DEI work. And one of the presenters had said something along the lines of, we need to stop making the focus of DEI be about morals and values, because it assumes that everybody has the same morals and values. So when I'm hearing a lot of people, and I think that my personal approach is to put humanity first, but that's a little touchy-feely for some people who really just need to understand like the business, the business bottom line and, and 
business value of DEI. And one of the, this same presenter had said, I won't name the company that they mentioned, even though I think it's public news, but whatever. They had said that when they talk to their students about organizations that they're thinking of working at post-graduation, they mentioned one organization who now refuses to take companies public if that company has all men on their board. We need more examples. We need more testaments about why there is business value to DEI and not just the humanity behind it because humanity pulls on people's heartstrings and not everybody has those same heartstrings. So I think that when we talk about needing to get more actionable and really doing this work on a larger scale, I think that's a part of it. Like we have to, those of us who are the practitioners doing this work, well, we got into this work because we're often very passionate about it, but we have to understand that the people that probably need to be reached by this work the most are sometimes people who don't have those same morals and values. So how do we change our language enough to speak to them and still get the same outcome, but do it in a way that speaks to the way that they process this information and that they see the value in this information? So it reinforced that for me, and I'm I'm grateful for that. What about you, Zach? That same focus is what kind of hit me. And I think I like the way you just put it. When I was listening, I believe it was Leora who spoke to how a lot of people would make their decisions on what companies to support and products to buy based on factors that didn't have anything to do with their brand. Businesses were treating their employees based on whether they would get sued or not. But now they're thinking, I actually have to showcase that we are a, a positive brand and that we treat our workers not only amazing, but we treat the environment amazing. Like we're, we're hitting all these other tips. That's a part of their branding now, which I, I never thought was thought of it as a negative. And I like the way Leora positioned it and that, that it isn't. It shouldn't be looked at as a negative. But like you said, there, there are those folks in those companies who don't really see the heartstring element of it as much, and they need it to come through a different lens through mm. the growth of my business versus those other channels, which, again, I, I would hope and wish that they open their hearts and, and, and get a little bit of that, that other element in them. But you got to start somewhere. And I think making sure we approach it from that wider perspective and coming up with the language that hits them right is is really important. So I really enjoyed that from this episode. Yeah. Oh, and thank you both for those perspectives. And, and speaking of things that you enjoyed from the episode, did either of you have some more impactful moments or stories or takeaways that you'd want to share? I hadn't heard it explained. I believe it was Tamar who did this, mentioned the six habits of inclusion. So I thought that was really great to see that mapped out. It was definitely something that I'll bring into conversations and in some of our workshops in the future, but it was a non-judgment receiving and believing, which I thought was really, I, I thought about that I was like receiving and believing, like hearing, but actually taking to heart and believing what someone's telling you, especially if they have a different lived experience. I think that's a huge element of inclusion. Self-awareness. I was really intrigued by curiosity. I was intrigued by curiosity. Yeah, that <laughs> the taking responsibility for the impact that you have on others and vulnerability and how she broke those down. I thought that was a really great takeaway for me from this episode that I, I plan to, to share with others and, and just have that consciousness of thinking about those different habits and, and taking time in your day to make sure you're acting accordingly or changing the way you think based on some of those, those positive habits. I thought that all the voices included in this episode were great and they brought in a variety of perspectives, but Lily Zhang, they are a powerhouse. We've actually had them in one of our events and I think I align a lot with their perspective and their no-nonsense approach. And I appreciate that. It's really refreshing. 
But one thing that they had said was you have to accurately name the problem before you can solve it. And one thing that I'm continuously finding is that even in these DEI spaces where I'm working with other practitioners who've been doing this for years, there seems to be this fear to use accurate language to identify what it is the problem is. And so when Lily spoke about white supremacy, I know that at times people who are not fully educated around what all white supremacy encompasses can feel specifically white individuals, white males can feel as though that is an attack on them personally. But I think there is a way to draw in a lot of people to understand that white supremacy attacks all of us in different systems, right? It's like this overarching system that has hands in in several different areas. And so I find sometimes that when doing this work, people are fearful to even say white supremacy or terms that might be trigger terms for certain people because they're scared that they're going to lose people's attention the moment they say that. And while I understand that that can absolutely be the case, the reality is somehow we have to find a way to be real about it. And when you shy away from naming a problem exactly for what it is, then you're not actually doing the work the way it needs to be done to have the real impact because we're doing things to coddle people's feelings more than we are doing them for the reason that they are hiring us or coming to us to do them, which is to solve problems, to get to better solutions. So we have to get past this. And I'm not just saying throw it in people's face like, hey, this is white supremacy. No, but I think that you can point to examples in which white supremacy negatively impacts white people. So bring your audience in, but be real while you're doing it. And I think that really ties into the point that you made earlier, Azaria, about speaking to people on the level that they're at and really Mm -hmm. getting people engaged because of their own self-interest versus like this bleeding heart narrative. And we did an episode, I think it was in the second season, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but about white allies. And it was really important for me to look at things like the suicide epidemic in this country that can be directly traced to white supremacy, the prevalence of opioid use and addictions, the prevalence of eating disorders, like mental health issues that white people are suffering from as a result of white supremacy. And I think that if we make this conversation binary about, oh, well, this is just something that BIPOC people deal with, and will you white people please help us? That's Mm -hmm. a very different thing than looking at it as, hey, this is a system that negatively impacts all people. It might impact us to different degrees or in different ways, but we should all be invested in dismantling and disrupting this system because it has really negative ramifications on your life, whoever you are. And so I think that's really important. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. 
To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. I think one of the things that really stood out to me from this episode was just how many reasons people can have for getting involved in this work and how it almost doesn't matter why people start on this path, but how the work itself can become its own, I want to say, engine, right? That like once we start this work, I think the work in and of itself starts to pay off and become more and more imperative and we see the positive results. And so I just think it's important to get people engaged and doing something. And then through the course of that engagement, things do get better. But Zach and Azaria, were there any quotes that resonated for you or anything that you want to shout out for our audience? I had one that I thought was cool from Juan when he was talking about ERGs and mentioned that you don't have to be to belong, which I thought was short, sweet, and made a lot of sense. A lot of folks at various companies, they might see that there's an, an ERG that relates to BIPOC folks at that company. You can still be supportive of those folks and be a member of that ERG. You don't have to think, oh, well, I'm not a BIPOC and therefore I don't belong in that group. You, you do. From an ally perspective, from a, a, an ability to not only educate yourself, but then educate others and bring others into that circle as well. I think that was 
cool that he said that. And it's one thing that I think a lot of folks can take away and, and broaden their horizons by, by getting involved with, with various ERGs that they might not normally think are there for them. I like that. I don't think that there were necessarily specific quotes that stood out to me. I think sometimes when you do this work, you can sometimes feel as though you've heard some version of all of it at some point. But I really enjoyed listening to this episode because, Darylise, getting back to the point that you make people pulling on their own experiences and doing this work, there's a lot of value in that. And it, it made me think about myself and why I do the work that I do. And again, it makes me want to challenge myself, though, because going back to what I said previously, while I got into this work because my personal passions, I think it's still very important to realize that as DEI practitioners, we often are drawing on personal experiences, but there is no way that our personal experiences embody everybody's experiences. So it challenges me to continue to want to step outside of my comfort zone. Why I got into this work is important, and it certainly drives what I do. But I also am constantly thinking about areas, demographics of people, identities that I am not familiar with that I need to continue to educate myself on. And I think bringing that notion forward, because sometimes practitioners can come off as though when they're consulting and and giving guidance to people as though they have it all figured out. And the humanity side that I can bring forward is saying that even as someone who is giving you this training, designing a solution for your organization, I still struggle with X, Y, and Z, or I still don't feel the most knowledgeable around whatever it might be. And when you bring that part of yourself forward as someone who works in the DEI industry, I think that's the humanity piece that's sometimes lacking. And I think that it is what brings us closer. So I can be real with my language. I can call it what it is, but I can also sit here and tell you that I'm not preaching to you because I also need to work on these areas and I find value in that. So it was refreshing to hear how many people do this work because they're passionate about it. But it was also just a call to myself like, hey, you know a lot about these areas, but there's also still more to learn in those areas. And you can just continue to reach more people by being more honest about where you're at even. And I think that's what makes you an effective practitioner is your willingness to continue to evolve, your willingness to continue to admit the areas that maybe you don't know. And and none of us are ever going to have it all figured out. But you know, it's interesting because after doing the reporting for this episode, I stumbled upon an article that really resonated for me. And we'll share a link to that in the show notes. But the article is from BBC Work Life, and it's entitled Why Ineffective Diversity Training Won't Go Away. And I found it really fascinating that there's an acknowledgement that not only are not all DEI trainings created equal, but also there's some DEI trainings that are either counterproductive or not effective at all. And I love to think about how to make this work more effective. And so I just love like from the two of you, your perspectives on that. My first perspective is hired to the Demystifying Diversity podcast team (laughs) to come and do your trainings and your consulting. But really, it, it actually relates to something that Amanda mentioned, and that was having that growth mindset. I think that's one thing that a lot of businesses and companies are are lacking, and you can tell which ones are lacking it. Usually, it's the ones that seem to still have DEI issues pop up from time to time. But she spoke about working internally first with the the people who are making a difference in the company, who are the, the folks who are becoming those leaders in, in that space and sewing more into them, letting them become more of mentor roles and letting them create programs 
that fit what they think is ideal for the company instead of just saying, hey, we're going to have this workshop you have to get through and maybe not everyone picks stuff up from it. This would have more of a lasting impact if you actually sow into individuals within your company and let them lead the charge moving forward. So I think that's one possibility to make the work more effective. I love that sewing into individuals. That's great. The title is Why Ineffective Diversity Training Won't Go Away. When I think of training, there are DEI consultants whose jobs are to take on projects that last for months, a year, a year plus, right? And you often see in those situations that they're doing a lot of the gritty collecting data, really analyzing, understanding where the organization is at. And so that I'm not including that in what I'm about to say. But when I think of trainings, I think of companies hiring one-off individuals to come and give a presentation based off of the brand that this individual has become known for, right? And and to come in and give a single training or maybe a couple over a period of time, but they're not doing the work of necessarily consulting with that organization over a long period of time. So with trainings, I think the reason so many of them are ineffective is because they are treated as though it's a one size fit all. If I'm a DEI trainer who gets hired on for a one-time training with this organization, I have a side deck and portfolio already created around a DEI topic. We agree with this company and then I go in and I teach it. But I really think trainings need to be viewed as very many consulting projects. And by that, I mean, certainly you don't have the same span of time. You're not being paid the same that a long project would be with a consultant, but you need to go in and say, okay, I understand you want a training on this. Tell me where your organization stands in that framework. If you want training on bias, where are you seeing bias show up? Give me a a quick report of the numbers in your organization. Let me sit with this for a little bit before I develop this training, because The issue is, is that trainings are often not customized to the organization. So you're speaking to an audience of people who are not going to receive it the way it needs to be received because it's not relevant to them. So I've been a part of DEI trainings where majority of the people in the room have some experience around DEI and the trainer comes in and they're talking as though this is DEI 101 day one of DEI. And I'm just sitting there like, had you have known your audience better before coming in to conduct this training, you would know that you wouldn't need to start at the most basic training level. And that is ineffective and it will always be ineffective. So you have to go into trainings really requiring that you partner a little bit prior to the training with the organization to understand how the topic and where they're currently at needs to be shaped in order for it to be received well by the audience. Fantastic responses area. Love it. I was thinking that when I mentioned hire us, that's what I was saying, but not saying it. Having folks who are going to do trainings who actually talk to you ahead of time and understand your needs on a pretty deep level. There, at least you do an amazing job of that for every time we have a new training. Like that's a major key to have trainings be successful. Was there anything that didn't make it into this episode that you'd have wanted to include? It's interesting because we've been talking a lot from the practitioner's perspective about DEIAB and like what things are useful, what things are helpful, what things don't work, what things do work. And I think in retrospect, 
it would have been really interesting to include some voices of people on the receiving end of DEIB initiatives, like who maybe don't have a vested interest or who maybe like work in an organization where they're bringing in DEI initiatives or where they're not bringing in those initiatives to offer some of those outside perspectives. Like I always feel like there's so much more that could be explored and we just can't get to it all. I would have wanted some of of those voices because I know even Zach, when you and I go in and do a training, like the feedback that we get from people really shapes things going forward. And I think it would have been really important and impactful maybe to include some voices for people who have been part of company-wide audits or been part of an initiative, a, a DEI initiative that sort of came in as a result of a negative experience or been part of a company that is not doing DEIAB trainings, even though their employees really want that. So I would have loved to include that. And I think that could have added another dimension to the conversation. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. So I think now would be a great time to move into our expert interview section of the Q&A episode in this interview, I had the opportunity to speak with Timothy Welbeck. And Azaria, because of his temple connection, why don't you do the honors and introduce Timothy? Timothy is another all-star. I've only gotten to work with him a few times, but he is amazing and his interview is amazing. Timothy Welbeck is the director of the Center for Anti-Racism Research and an assistant professor of instruction at Temple University. He is a civil rights attorney by training. Timothy is also a scholar of law, race, and cultural studies. He earned his JD from Villanova University Charles Widger School of Law and his BA from Morehouse College, where he graduated cum laude and was awarded the Corella and Bertrand Bonner Scholarship. He's also an incredible hip-hop artist and musician, and we'll put links to his website and his works in the show notes. Darylise, let's play the clip of your interview with Timothy, and we'll come right back and talk about it. the lightness and the dark let's embrace one another single colleagues working mothers people of all points of view can we see each other 
I do the work that I do because I feel it's my life's purpose to continue to work for and advocate for vulnerable people, to help build a society that has equitable treatment for all people, and just generally affirm people's humanity. That is something that not only do I take great joy in doing, but it feels like what I'm supposed to be doing. And in many ways, much of what I do right now is I think the culmination of my life's work up to this point. Prior to coming to Temple, I worked for an educational nonprofit. I've created a mentoring and tutoring program. I've taught at the primary level and I'm a civil rights attorney and have been for the past several years. I've written about these things, I've taught about these things, and they all come together in the work that I'm doing right now. In terms of how it's changed me, I'm still processing that. I'm not fully sure how it's changed me, aside from I know that it has increased my resolve to keep going. And I think also I have a better sense now of the obstacles in front of us and the scope of the work that it'll take to overcome them. When you speak about the scope of the work, I think about just how vast the need for this work is and how vast the work itself is. And so when you're looking at organizations or at people who do care about anti-racism or they care about DEI, how do you advise people or organizations to begin to get actively engaged in anti-racism and DEI work? I say that organizations should begin where they are and to examine their own corporate structure and their own culture within their organization and make sure that the culture is about anti-racism, it's about equity. And if it's not to shift the priorities of the organization to ensure that it is, I think that's how you start. And Before you can begin to do external work, I think it's important to do the internal work. I think if every corporation were concerned about treating its people equitably, we would have less to do as a society. I think start there. If you're concerned about the work of anti-racism, if you're concerned about the work of equity, start where you are with what you have. And then once you have something that you believe is making a difference where you are, then to begin to expand outwardly. When you mentioned anti-racism and equity, and I wonder how you feel about the importance of doing work that is specific versus broad in the DEI space, because I think anti-racism work is incredibly important and is part of diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but there's a wide umbrella of work that can be done in a number of vulnerable populations. And so how do you navigate the dance between the specific, more narrow focus and the broader, more global focus? When you were asking it, I thought about how in Glory, Common says, justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. The idea is that certainly there are broader implications for the impact of racism and strategies to mitigate it. But I think you have to begin where it's most pronounced. You have to begin where the struggle is most prolonged. And that's not for the exclusion of other groups. And that's not even to say that if an imminent threat arises, you ignore that. But 
in the grand scheme of things, most of the racist structures in our country, most of the racist systems in our country began with the idea of disenfranchising Black people, making Africans to be property, depriving them of rights and liberty, and doing so for generations upon generations. And in the process of doing that, you have all of these policies and laws and customs that flow from that that ultimately begin to impact other people groups too. And as they do impact other people groups, they began to take on different iterations. But I think if you start there, you can unravel the way some of these systems impact other people as well. You mentioned that some of these systems began with people being considered property of others. And I wonder, when we think about anti-racism, are the needs different in a workplace environment than they might be in, let's say, familial environments or in other social groups and structures? Absolutely. Every environment is going to yield different stimuli. And so we need to take different measures in different places. What I do at home will likely differ than what's at work, in part because of the demands of what happens at work are different. And then also the relational interactions are different too. The power structures are different. And so that's partly why I advise people to tailor their responses to the place that they are. You, you start with the end goal in mind of anti-racist work and advocacy, equitable treatment of people. And then from there, you begin to look at how, what does that look like in the setting that I'm in? Or to put it another way, Cornell West once said that justice is what love looks like in public. In the same way, this is going to manifest in public. If love is the ethos, if it's the guiding principle, it's going to take on the form of justice when it meets unjust treatment of people. That's going to look differently in your home. It's going to look differently in the office. It's going to look different in the public square. But ultimately, the goal should be the same. I've never heard that quote before, but it rings so true. And I think sometimes for me, it's easy to see what love looks like, and it's easy to see what the opposite of love looks like. It's that those in-between places that it's challenging. But I'm wondering if you can maybe give some examples of practices or structures that support injustice in the workplace and then practices that promote more equitable power dynamics so that people can do that mathematical translation and see themselves in some of the examples that you might give? In the most immediate sense, I think one of the most unjust ways that inequity finds its way into the workplace is with hiring practices, compensation, and then the direct treatment of people in their spaces. Everyone who's done any type of meaningful study has demonstrated that when you look at hiring practices in a general sense across corporations in America, white men are typically favored even when their credentials are not equitable or comparable to some of their non-white counterparts or some of their counterparts who are not men. For example, there was a study that came out a few years ago that demonstrated that if you remove the names of Black women from their resumes and put them through the hiring process, all of them made it to the final interview. But we don't see that practice play out in real life oftentimes because Black women are not afforded the same level of opportunity, even when their credentials su suggest that they should be. So hiring practices, 
pay scales and compensation again. In a general sense, white men sit atop of the pay scale of every organization and system. Again, this is a general sense. You can find anomalies anywhere. But looking at, again, equitable pay structures, compensation packages, and scales go a long way because people spend the bulk of their day at their job and they're not volunteering. (laughs) They're working to make a living. And so when you pay someone less for doing the same work, you are having a negative impact on their life. They're now having to work more to get the same thing as someone else. And all of the stressors that come with that are going to begin to pile on them. And then lastly, just the direct treatment of people at work. In my civil rights practice, one of the consistent types of complaints I get most often is inequitable treatment at work, microaggressions that impact non-white people, particularly people of color, immigrants, Muslims, things like that, are finding various forms of mistreatment happening, whether it's retaliation, whether it's unfair promotion structures or failure to do so, whether it's demeaning comments or things that just otherwise belittle them. Those things disproportionately are happening to women, people of color, and religious minorities, immigrants, things of that nature. Well, and then there's the intersectional piece where, I mean, the example that you gave, women are historically paid less than men for doing the same work. And then add on top of that, the layer of race or disability or sexual orientation or what have you. And it really becomes easy to see how certain people are multiply marginalized. You hit the nail on the head in that people who embody multiple identities are facing the brunt of these various forms of discrimination, sometimes to the point that they can't even necessarily signal why it is they're being discriminated against. Is it because they are a woman, because they are a person of color? Is it because they are disabled? Is it because they are not from the United States? Is it because maybe they don't fit other categories that people might find to be traditional? All of these things can sometimes intersect in the same body. And when they do, sometimes they bring with them harsher forms of discrimination. I think there's different schools of thought. And so I'm not necessarily looking to you to have one answer on this, but I'm always curious, how much can we work within existing systems and how much do we have to create something new and start over? Because I I think there's different schools of thought on that. There certainly are different schools of thoughts. And honestly, which... I guess framework is most relevant, depends on what system you're looking at. In the last several years, abolition has become more in vogue when we talk about policing and prisons. The idea itself is decades, if not centuries old, but at least in the United States, there's been advocacy, direct advocacy, at least for the last 40 some odd years around prison abolition, police abolition and the like. But we are now seeing a significant rise and people who are making that level of advocacy. In terms of societal structures, that's one place where we're seeing a range of different forms of suggestions. There's some people who say the system works fine. (laughs) I think that's a laughable proposition. I think we see every day why that's not true. There's some people who are suggesting various types of reforms that are incremental in nature. And then there's some people who want more wide scale reforms, 
that's what is, I guess, sometimes referred to as defunding the police and and that we restructure our priorities in terms of society and things like that. And then there's the furthest end where people are arguing for abolition. Honestly, that's a long answer to a simple question. And again, I'm going to go back to what law professors often say and is that it depends. So what school of thought is best suited is it depends on what we're talking about and when we're talking about it too. I actually really appreciate an answer that is not one size fits all because I think that gets people into trouble when we try to plug and play solutions where you know different organizations, different systems, different environments, different communities really require different things. And I think part of the lie of white supremacy is this idea that that we can apply the same systemic pressures and priorities to everyone. And that, that just isn't true. It's not. And I think that that's where we often become misguided and that there, there are multiple ways to look at a problem and there are multiple ways to even assess, I guess, the starting point too. And we often find ourselves limited when we exalt one worldview, one frame of reference over others and presume that's the only way to look at things. That's partly how we've gotten into the problems that we had before by asserting that one people group and their norms, their customs, their identity are superior to others, or at least they're the baseline framework for understanding all of humanity. And any deviation from that is abnormal, dysfunctional, or inferior. When you start from that vantage point, you're going to create systems that subjugate people. Understanding that there are billions of people on the planet and that there are multiple ways to conceive of identity and and communal gatherings and identifying problems and solutions, then I think we are on our way to beginning to solve them. I'm curious, though, when you say beginning to solve them, how do we quantify wins if there's not one particular framework? And specifically, let's say in a workplace setting, if a if an employer wants to make their place of employment more equitable or more embracing of a variety of identities, how do you assess how that's going if there are a variety of frameworks that are operating? I think one of the ways that you go about doing that is by looking at, does your organization reflect society at large? In a proportional way, are you representative of the general population? And I think once you begin to ask yourself that question, depending on your answer, then you can start to make adjustments. So, for example, the legal field is disproportionately white and disproportionately male. Some people will tell you that that's just because of cultural differences and historical trends and not necessarily from disenfranchisement. But if you look closer at historical trends and how women and people of color were excluded from higher education and the legal field at some period of time and just overall the legal process, you begin to explain why there are some of these discrepancies. And then once you begin to identify why some of those discrepancies are in place, you can then begin to look at what are some of the impediments to entry? What are some of the things that we can do to make a pathway for those who historically have been denied access. Those are all measurable things. 
you can say that we can or we have implemented this policy and this policy has made for more opportunities for this segment of the population over this period of time. Those types of things are measurable. And that's why I say it's all contextual because what might work in a legal field may not work in medicine. And that might not translate to other fields also. So it's just a matter of looking at where you are and what you can do with what you have. I love when you speak about ability to reflect the population and the dynamic nature of the work. And one of the things, Timothy, that really stood out for me in our original interview is how multidisciplinary you are as a person. You're like, yeah, I'm an academic and I'm a lawyer and I rap. I'm a musician. I'm a spiritual person. And so it seems you have grown your capacity to meet a number of different people where they are speaking a variety of different languages, broadly speaking, communicating in different styles. Is that challenging for you? I don't know. Are there any tips that you have for others, maybe let's say managers or people working to be able to be more diverse in their approaches? Because I think that's part of your efficacy. I'd say so. I guess the first part, is it difficult? To some degree, it is trying to strike a balance between it all. But to other degrees, it's not difficult in that I look at it as me being my most authentic self. All of these things that I do are outgrowths of who I am as a person. As a consequence, it's just me leaning into that. What I would say in terms of, I guess, people in managerial positions is that they should be more open-minded about how their perspective of what the work is and how it can be done may differ from how it may manifest in someone else. I was talking to a law student a few months ago and I was telling her how when I was coming up, particularly in law school, this multidisciplinary approach that I have was frowned upon. Sometimes it was direct, but it was mainly indirect in that people just expected you to devote most of your effort and energy into becoming a successful attorney. You might have other interests or pursuits outside of that, but those were supposed to be secondary outside of maybe your family. I certainly encountered many attorneys who would say, you need to take care of your home life before your work life. So I don't want it to seem like no one prioritize anything outside of work in that field. But some of the other things that I do were often seen as a distraction. I certainly understand why some people could arrive at that conclusion. But what I've ultimately told people is that the different approaches that I have are various manifestations of the same idea. The same part of me that can step on stage or step into a classroom is the same side of me that can step into a courtroom. And the same side of me that might write a song is the same side of me that might write a critical essay or might write a legal brief. I'm manifesting the same skill set or the same gift, but I'm just doing it in a different setting. So in those examples, it's public speaking and oral advocacy. And then in the second set of scenarios, it's writing. Then from there, it's just me finding the context, the motivation behind it all to do it effectively for that particular setting. I'm curious how operating in those different settings 
gives a more holistic, more three-dimensional understanding of, let's say, oppression and liberation. Because I would imagine that those elements would be there too. If you're constantly addressing the same sets of people, the same communities, like you might not have that 3D vision. I think that's a great way to put it. I hadn't thought of it that way to call it a 3D approach, but it certainly feels that way. And like you said, it gives a widened lens into these various issues that I that I deal with. Because you're right, there are times where I deal with it in an artistic manner. There are times where I deal with it in a legal manner. There are times where I deal with it in a scholarly manner. And ultimately, at times, we're looking at the same thing. I think it gives me a fresh perspective and gives me, at times, additional insights, too, into how to handle some of these things as well. I think the 3D approach is a really powerful illustration, and it reminds me of one that I do in workshops sometimes where I ask everyone in the workshop to draw a picture of the room as they see it. And so I give everyone materials to to write or draw with, and then from there we do that. And one of the things that we do is we examine the pictures and we talk about how the pictures all look different, especially if people are comparing pictures with someone who's sitting in a different dramatically different place than they are, but it's still an accurate reflection of the room. It's just from a different vantage point. It's the same room. Looking at the same problem from an artistic standpoint, from a scholarly standpoint, from a legal standpoint, as times is going to allow me to see it's the same problem. It's the same room. And so sometimes we're going to have to take creative approaches to addressing the issue. I'm a visual person and I'm like, yes, now I can I can use that to illuminate and illustrate when speaking with people because you're right. I mean, and, and I think people often get tied to their particular truth and no one is invalidating their truth, but it is limited in its scope. But I'm curious, one of the things that comes up again and again is how important it is for anti-racism work, for diversity, equity, and inclusion work to have structural backing and often financial resources in order to gain traction. And an article came out earlier this year about Temple funding the center that you are director of that is engaged in anti-racism work. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about what the value of having organizational support has given and why other organizations should, so to speak, put their money where their mouths are. That's immensely important. As people often say during election cycles, budgets are moral documents because they demonstrate what you value. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where you put your money shows what you value. So In the one sense, it is great that Temple has committed resources to have a physical space that is dedicated to this work and has allowed me to do this work and and not only work from it, but invite others to do the same. We're still working on securing more funding to expand the scope of our work and bring other people in here as well. So we're still working on that end of it. But at least... From a starting point, I think we are at a tremendous advantage in that we have a commitment that's firm. We have built a physical space to operate out of. And so that's, as of right now, a permanent part of campus. That, to me, signals that there is literal space for the work and also space for the work to grow. I could ask you a ton more questions and would soak that all in, but we do have some listener questions. So we would love to just play a listener question, have you answer that, and we'll just continue to go through that flow. 
Hello. I had a question about smaller companies. I understand that DEI uh, work is, is profitable for larger organizations, but what about smaller companies? What I would say is with smaller companies, do you have the same resources and reach and visibility as a major corporation? No, you do not. But you still can treat the people that you have well. You still can offer them a meaningful wage. You can still listen to them in terms of their working environment and see if there are ways that you can improve them. And sometimes you have more liberty with hiring practices too, because you don't have as much bureaucracy and corporate protocols. When the opportunity avails itself, you have at times more flexibility to hire the most qualified person, the best fit for your organization, and can consider some of what we've talked about today in terms of your hiring practices. But I think it's it starts with just the small company even having a desire to do that. And, and I appreciate what sounds like a small business owner having a desire to do something like this, to consider diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, those types of concepts will go a long way. And so I'm not sure what field this entrepreneur is in, but also even the vendors that you work with, the venues that you support, aside from even your hiring practices, also can go a long way too in making sure that you're supporting different people groups and these issues at large. Oh, I love that question. And the answer, Timothy, that you both spoke about some internal practices and some external practices, because I think even if someone is a solopreneur, right, I mean, they can certainly invite themselves to think about who is serving, who is outside of their realm of influence or experience, and and to create partnerships that are meaningful with people of a variety of different identities and to really grow their capacity. So I love that question. And thank you so much for that answer. Yeah. There's been a lot written about the difference between equity and equality. But are there times when equality is warranted or is equity what we should always be striving for? I would say is, again, looking at the end goal, what is it that you want to accomplish? And I think that often answers the question. But in a broader sense, what I would say is that because of the history of our country has been inequitable, has been unequal, there more likely than not needs to be a focus on equity over equality. Because everyone doesn't have the same starting place. I know we like to say that we do, but there's too much knowledge out there that shows otherwise. One of the things I was thinking about as the caller was asking that question was Plessy versus Ferguson. The decision said that segregation can be legal so long as the accommodations are separate and equal. And we all know from the history of that period of time, the conditions were not equal. They absolutely were separate. They were never equal. As a consequence, to try to undo that requires more than giving everyone the same thing today because everyone didn't start in the same place. And so, again, there might be scenarios where equality is to be valued over equity, but I think those are rare scenarios and that we should look for equitable treatment first and prioritize that unless the situation warrants otherwise. And I think sometimes if we're looking at what is equitable, it might be to give people the same thing. You know, if we're serving a lunch or something, perhaps you give everyone the same type of food or whatever it is. But in the pursuit of equity, 
sometimes equality will be warranted, but I think it's a better question to ask what is equitable than what is equal. And I think your food analogy is an excellent one, because if I gave a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a 15-year-old the same exact meal and the same exact proportions, everyone got the same thing, (laughs) but that's probably not the best way to ensure that all of them are nourished. A three-year-old doesn't need to eat as much as the 15-year-old. And so if I gave the 15-year-old and the three-year-old the same exact amount, either the three-year-old has too much or the 15-year-old has too little. Again, this is a hypothetical scenario where, you know, there are no health challenges or dietary restrictions, but just in that analogy, it seems like equality is the gut instinct, but equity is going to say that proportions matter, dietary restrictions matter, and all of those things should be considered when serving food. Thank you so much for that response, Timothy. And thank you to the caller for the question. I think it was a really valuable one. Hey, I have a question. Ever since 2020, since George Floyd's murder, there's been a ton of others. He just was one of the ones who started the rise in investment for diversity, equality, inclusion for a lot of businesses and companies across the states. But there still seems to be a lack of understanding and the need for systemic change. So how can companies use the public support for continued diversity, equality, inclusion work and actually make meaningful changes rather than performative ones? I think it starts again with looking at your individual company structure and culture and looking at, is your company treating all people fairly? Is your company doing the work Or is your company responding to public pressure and then will stop responding to public pressure when our attention goes to something else? If I were to go to the person who is on the bottom rung of the totem pole in your company and ask them how they're treated, would they say that they are treated in a way that's fair and equitable? If the answer to that is no, then there needs to be something done within that company. I think that's where it starts, valuing people over profits, valuing people over public perception, because as we saw, many companies made commitments and pledges in the summer of 2020, and now we are almost three years removed, and many of those companies have not made good on their statements or have moved on and reverted to business as usual, and it makes their initial statement look performative and reactionary, and that's what we don't want. We don't want performance. We don't... (laughs) If we want performances, we could turn on television or <laughs> go to a sporting event or a concert or a play or something like that. But when we're talking about the corporate world, we don't need a performance. We need the corporate world to treat people right. And one thing I want to add to that, I love your response, Timothy. I want to add that some organizations have enough trust and enough self-awareness and enough structures of support that they can I believe, assess what needs to be done internally and make those changes and those shifts. And some organizations, the trust is really fractured. The managerial styles do not support disclosure and open dialogue. And so I think a lot of organizations are served by bringing in external consultants to do this kind of evaluation work or to do some education or to do an intercompany audit. And then some companies, maybe it's a company of two and they don't have those resources So just knowing that sometimes companies can do this work on their own and some cultures 
really benefit from the inclusion of external voices. And that's a reoccurring theme with me today, that there isn't necessarily a one-size-fit-all solution for everybody. Each organization has to look at how it is governed, how it is structured, how its people function within it. And then from there, begin to make some determinations about how to proceed forward. Thank you so much. I think we can play the next question. Can a capitalist system be reformed to be more humanistic, or do we as a society need to start over and do something completely new? Just a thought. That's the exact type of question we were talking about before. There are many who would argue that capitalism as a framework, economic framework, even as a philosophical one, is never going to value people over profits. I think there's some truth to that. It's not designed to. It's designed to maximize profits and gains, to consider the bottom line over all things. As as much as people may bristle at the idea, I think there's absolutely room to reconsider how we as a society function. And humans existed for millennia before capitalism was a governing economic system across the world. And so we have figured out how to live together collectively prior to capitalism. I think we can learn how to live together post-capitalism, too. What I will add to that, though, is while we are in a capitalist structure, we can still fight to find ways to be more equitable in our treatment, because that's the system we have right now. And I always encourage those who are seeking to reform or to overall restructure and tear things down is to, while you do that, operate well with what we have. So, yes, there might come times where we need to destroy and then rebuild. But in the process of doing that, while we have the system that we have, let's maximize it for all people. I think it's a simultaneous walk to do that. But yes, the short answer is I absolutely believe that there is room to reconsider society in the absence of capitalism. And one of the great ironies is that it's actually been demonstrated that diversity, anti-racism work actually makes companies more profitable. But I think to the caller's question and to the points that you were making, Timothy, that the valuation of profits over people, let's say, means that when push comes to shove, organizations and those at the helm are going to make decisions based on the bottom line as opposed to based on people. So I think that even though a side, a benefit, an inherent benefit of DEI work is that companies are more profitable, if that's the reason behind a company's engagement in DEI work, then ultimately I think there will be moments where the structure fails the individuals who are a part of it because the decision-making is coming from that capitalistic place. And even to your point, when you mentioned that diversity, equity, and inclusion is generally more profitable, it shows you the irrationality of racism, that we're in a capitalistic system that generally values profits over all things. (laughs) But when it comes to this one thing, it's willing to look the other way to continue the imbalances that we have been talking about today. Bias is irrational, right? I think, but people, it feels logical. It feels true to people. And yet it is so untrue and unsubstantiated. Absolutely. We have one last caller. I'll play that one and see what they say. 
Hi, uh, this is Henry Lee from Columbus, Ohio. It seems like the social awareness in, in the DEI space seems to shift from racial justice to gender equality to LGBTQ and indigenous land and languages. The list is really endless. How do we make a difference when there are so many different important causes in the DEI space and, and companies need to work to support their employees while also creating whatever products or services that they provide to consumers. It feels impossible to do it all, and there is such a need for all of it. That is a profound question. And ultimately, what I would say is that we have to value the people in front of us. I think that corporations need to make sure that the people that are there working with them are valued, are treated fairly, and that the various isms that vacillate through society don't find their way into their company. At times, that's going to center on racism. At times, it's going to center on sexism. At times, it's going to center on bias against the LGBT community. At times, it will take on other manifestations. It might be working against xenophobia or religious intolerance. Trying to tackle it all simultaneously is a daunting task. And I would say you can't tackle them all simultaneously. You have to prioritize the most urgent need within a given corporation and then work backwards from there. If there's something that's on fire, you put that fire out first and hope the fire doesn't spread in a metaphorical sense. I think the other thing too is just to always remain open to different perspectives. One of the ways that I have been fortunate to grow in each of these areas is to listen to people who are not like me and to be in community with them and understand that I don't have all the answers. And not only do I not have all the answers, but there are so many things that impact other people differently than they impact me. As much as I advocate against racism and other things like that, I also must understand that women, that people who are disabled, people who are not born in this country, they're going to experience things differently than I am. And sometimes they're going to face discrimination in more pronounced ways than I do. Being open to those perspectives, being an advocate and an ally for them, I think goes a long way as well. But it's a daunting task. And the last thing I'd say too is these problems did not emerge within the span of three summers. These are things that are centuries in the making. They're not going to be undone in three summers either. There's also a level of patience that is required. But I think just in a concise sense, I would say focus on a urgent issue within the company. And once you have sufficiently addressed that, begin to address other ones as well. Timothy, thank you so much for that answer. Henry, thank you for that question. It's one that we think about a lot in our work. And I know, Timothy, you said you might not have all of the answers, but the answers that you've given here today have been really wonderful and supportive and very, very helpful. Is there anything that I didn't ask you or our listeners didn't ask you that you'd have wanted to share? I think between your questions and the listeners' questions, we've tackled a lot of things very well. So I thank you for your thoughtful questions and for the listeners' thoughtful questions as well. I would love, if you're open to it, for you to share anything that you're working on that our listeners can support or how they can get in contact with you or learn more about the work that you're doing, et cetera. And we'll put all links to all of that in the show notes. The Center for Anti-Racism is is open, and we have a signature event coming up on January 31st. It's the launch of our speaker series called Ideally Speaking. 
And we're going to have a conversation between myself and Dr. Ibram Kendi about anti-racism and the new frontier in anti-racism. Where do we go from here? That'll be on January 31st. We are also working on a violence reduction task force in partnership with the city and other civic organizations, hopefully to do a campaign around that that will launch hopefully either in the spring or summer, if not the fall. We also will potentially have some scholarship in the works, too. We're putting together a faculty advisory committee that will convene soon. So those things are in the works. For me personally, I hope to finish a book that I've been writing for quite some time. It's called No City for Young Men, Hip-Hop and the Narrative of Marginalization. I've taught a course of the same name in the past. And so I began the book and these other things that I'm doing to slow down the writing of the book. But I am getting to a point where I think I am closer to finished than not being finished. So hopefully that'll be coming soon. And, and my hope is before this year is done to have a publication date at least announced So working on that, for those who might be curious about my music, I recorded a live album last summer or late last spring, and I am releasing that to the public on February the 15th. It's called Train of Thought. I convened a live jazz band to do jazz renditions of some of my older songs in honor of John Coltrane as a part of the Black Music City series. So that's that's coming out shortly. I'm not sure exactly when this episode airs. So maybe when you're listening to this episode, you might be able to hear that. And just generally speaking, if you want to know more about what I'm doing or have done, my website is my name, timothywelbeck.com. It's pretty much a online home for most of the work that I have done. And then I am on social media to some degree. So I'm on Instagram. It's just my name, Timothy Welbeck. I'm also on Twitter, just my name, Timothy Welbeck. That's the social media I'm most actively engaged in. I do have a Facebook page, but I rarely check it. <laughs> I'm sorry. But that's most of what I have going on right now, like I said. So we have some exciting things coming with the center this spring semester. We'll announce plans for the fall, probably late spring, early summer, and got some writing and to do some teaching to do. Yeah, and then hopefully some new music for you all to listen to soon, too. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. We will put links to all of that in our show notes. And I just, Timothy, thank you for your time. Thank you to everyone who listened. I'm sure that they learned more about diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism. And I know that that I really did. And I, I think we can all start where we are and move forward. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Wasn't that great? I could talk with him for hours. So much stood out to me about that conversation, both on the personal and the professional level. And it was really great for me and very enlightening. What stood out to the two of you about what Timothy shared? I loved that in multiple ways, Timothy mentioned that you can really start where you're at with what you have in doing this work and being an organization or an individual who cares about this work. I think it can be overwhelming at times to think about how do we solve all the problems in the world and we never will probably quite solve everything. But 
to really make it that simple and say, hey, all of us have the ability to start where we're at with what we have. And I thought that he exemplified that well in his response to one of the listeners' questions around if you are coming from a small business, how do small businesses prioritize DEI? And it's the recognition that, no, you're not going to have the budget, the time, the the people to do work on the scale that these larger organizations do. But that doesn't mean that you say, oh, okay, well, we don't have that, so we're not going to do it. There are still opportunities in your day-to-day workflow, your business, to incorporate DEI-related initiatives, be it the vendors you work with, like Timothy mentioned, the wording and the the way you build your, your website. There are ways to do this work. And sometimes it's just reminding people that it's not as hard as we make it. And when I say we, sometimes it's us practitioners. Like we can make this work seem really hard for people who are just starting out or don't have the resources to do it at the scale in which a lot of these larger organizations do. Yeah. I really loved what he said and it related to what Azaria said before we went into the interview was that it wasn't really like a one size fits all And when you are looking to improve your DEIB at your organization, you really need to diagnose where you're at and come up with that custom plan and strategy to move the business forward. So I thought it was great that he echoed some of what we were discussing earlier, which made it really come full circle and make a lot of sense. Well, and speaking of like coming full circle and diagnosing different organizational issues, I'm thinking about how important it is in this area, you made this point as well, like how important it is to really understand what systems are operational, whether it be the systems of white supremacy or systems of privilege in culture and society at large, or the systems that govern the various organizations that people are going into as DEIB practitioners. And so I'm curious, like if anything from Timothy's interview or from the larger main podcast episode changed either of your understandings of the systems that either foster DEIAB participation or work against it? Did any of you have any insights about these larger systemic issues? That is a great question. And I don't know if I was thinking that way when listening to Timothy's or the main episode. But I do think that we have to always be cognizant that systems are at play in everything. And in order to identify those systems, it's important to talk to the people impacted by those systems to understand how those systems show up and how they're perceived and how they're named and recognized. And then you bring all of that together in your approach and you again, customize your approach to make sense for where this organization or these individuals fall within that system. And you acknowledge that there will be multiple people you're speaking to or working with who fall in different ends of the spectrum of that system. And that needs to be considered and applied in your approach. And again, this is speaking more so to DEI practitioners, but speaking to just an individual who might be attending DEI trainings or working at an organization that is prioritizing DEI, really start thinking about what systems do you feel are impacting the way that you show up, be it positively or negatively. And when you have these discussions or go into these trainings, be aware of that because that shapes, honestly, how you receive the information, the DEI-focused information. 
It's interesting because I feel like one of the things I always say before going into an organization is that every community knows what it needs. I mean, I really believe that. I believe that communities know what they need and that as outsiders, we can't just come in or whomever, whoever can't just come in and tell people what to do and how to feel and what to think and what they need to up-level, et cetera. And at the same time, I think when you're in it, it's really hard to see and assess it, right? Like some people, I think communities know what's going on. They know what systems are operating. If you get people engaged in conversation, employees engaged in conversations, they often know what is amiss in their organization and where the pain points are and where they feel uncomfortable. But I also think that sometimes when people are within a given system, they don't know that it could be different, that it could change. Mm-hmm. They don't know exactly like what is needed. They might know what they want, but they don't know how to get from A to B. So it's a it's an interesting dance and an interesting dichotomy, I think, because as you said, Azaria, like everything is occurring as part of a system. And if we want to promote greater inclusion and greater senses of belonging, we've got to promote systemic change in order to make that happen. And I think people know what systemic change is needed, but they're often so in the weeds that they can't really go about cultivating that. So I just, I feel like Lily had made the point about the importance of bringing in outsiders. And we had some voices of people who work within organizations from the DEIAB perspective, people who work as outsiders and consultants. And I really think both are needed. Like, I think there, we need to have people inside with an intimate knowledge of the systems, really working and supporting. And then we've got to have outsiders. And to the point that Timothy made, I think that can happen at whatever scale an organization is running on. I am a sole proprietor, right? Business owner. And even before hiring and managing a team and working with other people, like it was very important to me to be as diverse in my offerings as I could be, even when it was just me. And so I think we can always work within what we've got. And especially now with the prevalence of information and the internet and TED Talks and like all the stuff that's out there, I do think that people can really get the external input that they need while also honoring their internal experience and working to create some systemic change. Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. I'm curious, what are you hoping listeners will do differently after hearing this episode? We mapped out this season before and picked the the different episodes before uh, everything that is happening around DEI began to happen. I mean, obviously there were talks of it, but it has picked up substantially over the last several months. And so I think it is really important, both practitioners and people who are recipients of trainings and DEI work, I think it is important for all listeners to leave 
having listened to this episode and question everything you know about DEI. And when I say question everything, I mean adjust your views on DEI and the work that we're doing to fit the space that our nation is in. Right now, working with Sedwick, we have had people from other institutions who are in these states that are putting forward legislation to ban DEI work. We've had them reach out to us and ask for our advice on how do we continue to do this work, but title our center something differently or title our work something differently? How do we do that? Because we still think this work is important, but we legally are not allowed to call it what we're currently calling it. So I think that we really, specifically practitioners, The fact that DEI has never been a one size or should never be a one size fit all approach, it's more true now than ever because when we're doing this work with people in those states, people being impacted by this legislation, we have to be able to still deliver impactful results, but in a way that does not legally get them in trouble. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, Pennsylvania has not been impacted yet by any legislation of that nature. However, I'm already putting my mind five steps ahead and saying, but I'm not going to say that it will never happen. And so therefore, how do we start tailoring our approach to be current with the times and still make sure that we're doing this work in an impactful manner? And because there is such a serious threat against DEI work, we cannot as practitioners or as people who just care about this work and want to attend trainings, we can't continue to think of it as just a space to talk about feelings and emotions. This is where I say we have to get more aggressive, put more action behind our words and tailor our approach based on where we're at, the space that we're working in, the state in which we're working in to make sure that the overall outcome is still one that has the impact that is initially intended, but it can reach people who are constricted in different ways because that is what we are facing in this time. And it is a very real threat to our nations. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I would add to that, that I really would love to empower listeners to speak up. I think that we live in a country and I know that we have international listeners and that every society is slightly different. But just speaking from a perspective of someone who lives in the United States, I think that there are so many people who see so much wrong and don't say anything and don't necessarily do anything and don't feel empowered to have a voice. But people who are listening to this, they're the ones that are going to make a difference, right? They're the ones that are going to be able to speak out to say, you know what, this organization doesn't feel safe for everyone. I'm noticing that so-and-so isn't able to speak up at meetings. I'm noticing that women's voices aren't being heard. I'm noticing this, I'm noticing that. So I think I would just really encourage people to leverage their privilege. And the chances are, if you've got like a little icky feeling, and if you're noticing that something isn't quite right, other people are noticing that too. It's a prevalent issue. And there's a video, we'll put a link to the video in the show notes. It's a video called That Little Voice. And I know, Zach, you and I have used this in some of our trainings, and it talks about the importance of allies and that little voice that people get inside of themselves, that little whisper that says, you know what, like, this isn't right. Things that are happening at this organization aren't right. They're not fair. The people are being excluded. People are being mistreated. And and I know that we're talking about taking a business-oriented perspective and a systems-oriented perspective. I don't know that that's our audience. I think the people who are listening to this actually do care from an emotional standpoint as well as a business standpoint. So we'll put a link to that in the video. And I would just encourage encourage people who are listening. If you see something, say something. If you notice that something is wrong, have the courage to intervene in some capacity because that's how I believe change happens. 
What about you, Zach? Are you hoping listeners will do anything differently? Yes, I think some of the, the practices that I'm going to take away from listening to this episode, I would I would hope others do as well. And that open-mindedness when we were talking about ERGs and, and how everyone belongs, considering joining other groups. Also, I really was a fan of the six habits of inclusion. So not only adding that to their daily practice, but sharing that knowledge out, telling other folks about what they're doing personally to improve in that space. I think that would be great. The more people we have talking about it, the more positive change we can we can affect. Well, and in this episode, we spoke about changing culture. We spoke about changing systems. Do either of you have any examples of how you've worked to change systems or change culture within an organization and how effective or ineffective that's been? One thing I can, can speak towards, and I, I wouldn't really necessarily say it's within a an organization other than the work that we've done with Demystifying Diversity, but within my friend circle, since focusing on DEI work, which we began doing that a handful of years ago now, I've been more cognizant about how my friends talk and converse, especially, of course, when they're around me. And I've done my best to check them in a way without alienating our, our friendship. To give a quick example, having a buddy over while we're watching basketball and a commercial comes on that that shows a gay couple embracing and he says out loud how he doesn't like that on TV. And I asked him why and, and talked about it and had a nice little conversation with him and showed him my perspective and, and what I feel on it. And I can't say that he changed. I, I don't know if his feelings are, are different, but he knows where I stand. And I think that still has a positive impact on him because I, I think he also understands I'm not the only person who who thinks or feels that way. And I think he felt that I felt less of him and he didn't like that. So I think that it's going to impact him in future instances where he might want to say something around somebody else. So little things like that have been what I've been doing. But like I said, it's more of a personal change in my personal circle than than it is organization based. Zach, we mentioned earlier that sometimes it's just it was Timothy who said, start where you're at with what you have. And even if it's just your voice and your impact that you might have on the people around you, use that. Right. So. I love that. And I would say for me, being a part of Sedwick and Sedwick sponsoring and co-producing this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is a way in which we are trying to change culture and more so culture than, than systems, but obviously systems are a part of culture. And what I mean by that is that working at Temple University at the Fox School of Business, there are some bigger goals that we have as a center to really present DEI-focused information to our students, but some of them take time. And so having this podcast and presenting it to our faculty members and saying, hey, if these are topics in which you're interested in or want to incorporate into your teachings this week, here's a podcast that's already done for you. It's co-produced and sponsored by Sedwick, which is a Fox-branded center, so you can trust where it's coming from. And by doing that, we are slowly infusing DEI work throughout, not just Fox, but throughout Temple University because we've had voices from other schools within Temple. And now those voices and those faculty members are sharing the episodes in which they were on, which means it's reaching their communities and their spaces. And it's bringing the conversation into the higher education space, which can be hard to do at times. So I'm really grateful for the fact that Sedwick has done this project with the podcast because it is slowly 
introducing new concepts into spaces in a quicker way than we can do for some of our other goals that will happen still, but it takes time. So I'm grateful for that. Well, we're so grateful for you and for Sedwick's involvement and just the ability to collaborate and the ability to really bring this season to the workplace, because I don't know that that's something that we would have thought to do without working collaboratively with you all. So Aziria, we've been wrapping each episode by talking about how privilege, intersectionality, inequity, and identity can really come together both to support people in certain ways and to problematize things for them. And so I guess I wanted to ask, when it comes to DEIAB work, how people's ability to receive that, to implement that, to be impacted positively or negatively by that relates to their various marginalized intersecting identities? Well, this is a topic that I can say if it's being done the right way, which I caution to say that there isn't necessarily one right way because, but generally speaking, if it's being done the way that most of us doing the work intend for it to be done, DEIAB work should be speaking to a variety of identities. So someone who sits in a room with several different intersectionalities within their their identity, well, hopefully the work that we're doing is speaking to them on all of those levels, if not most. But I do understand, and I think Timothy Welbeck talked about this in his interview. He runs the Center for Anti-Racism Research, and sometimes DEI work can feel as though its main focus is the black and white argument, the race argument. But I think this gets to a deeper level of understanding around systems because, again, a lot of people who I speak to in this space are of the belief that when you can understand the experience of a Black person, that experience tends to honestly permeate throughout other experiences as well because the same systems show up in other demographics that show up in the oppression of Black people historically. So... I know sometimes it can feel like the DEI space is still so stuck in the black and white argument, but I encourage people to not look at it as being stuck. And I encourage them to look at it as being necessary because the same people who are looking for equitable advancement in the LGBTQIA plus space, in the disability spaces, the systems that they're fighting are the same systems that are still to this day, impacting black and brown folks. But I still think that there is a way to get that message across that brings everyone in, regardless of their intersectional identities. And if it's not, I think that should be a source of encouragement, right? Like I'm encouraged to figure out how Sedwick can constantly tweak our approach to make sure that there is not a single person sitting in our room who does not feel brought in by the message we're giving, who does not feel somehow seen in some way, shape or form. And that's a challenge that I gladly live up to. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that response. We could talk about this for like hours and still not be done. We'd love to hear from you if you're listening to this about your thoughts and questions. So please write us or call in. And FYI, for those who do write in and call in, we're going to be giving out a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity for every Q&A episode. So Azaria, care to announce the winner for this episode? Absolutely. We would like to say congratulations to Ellen Epps, who is a newsletter subscriber. Awesome. Congrats, Ellen. And thank you so much to everyone who subscribed to the newsletter and calls and writes us with questions. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll be answering some of your questions there too. 
And of course, thank you so much for joining us today and for listening in more than 50 countries around the world. And if you want to contact today's expert, Timothy Welbeck, visit his website, timothywelbeck.com, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes and a link to his music as well. And while you're checking out our show notes, be sure to click the link for DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. Yeah, the newsletter is huge. We send it out every week with an episode announcement. We're doing a lot more on social media this season. So please connect with us there, connect with Sedwick and get involved and engage. Get your employer engaged. Or if you are an employer, hopefully this will support you in creating a more inclusive workplace culture. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, with assistant director of Sedwick and co-producer and coordination consultant on this podcast, Azaria Keys, with Paul Kondo, our assistant producer and editor, Stuart Kraintz, our production and development assistant, and our content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Raymond Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. Thank you again to Timothy Welbeck, to everyone whose voice was on the last episode, and to you, the listener. And Zach and Azaria, thanks as well. This was really great. Please join us next week when we'll be talking about expanding beyond the workplace, creating a better world. You won't want to miss that. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.